Hello and welcome to Pondering Politics. Today we have a very special guest, Zach Plansky, who's on the London General Assembly. Say hello, Zach. Hello. It's actually the General London Authority and I'm on the oh. London Assembly. When people say General London Assembly, people get very upset about it, but it's fine. It's the most common mistake ever. No, I must apologise. Um, so, okay. Zach, uh, also, Zach is a, the Green Party member who's uh, a member on the party list and is a part of the most amount of Green Party members on the GLA. So congratulations to you. So to start off, how did you get involved in politics? Um, I got involved in politics because I was an actor. And when you're an actor, uh, especially in London, for anyone watching or listening to this who's ever done that, uh, you have to do like 20 different jobs. So I was working in a bar. I was working at a nightclub outside, not as security, but doing kind of guest list stuff. I was doing workshops. I was teaching. I was doing mental health counselling. I was working in schools and universities, all kind of different things. And then the theatre jobs I kept doing kept being political. And actually, I didn't know anything about politics. So without patronising you guys, I think it's amazing that you're running this podcast because when I was younger, I think if you'd asked me who the leader of the opposition was at certain times in my life, I would have taken a few seconds and not been entirely sure. Um, but actually, as I did more and more theatre in my 20s and late 20s, started to do more kind of social justice issues and started to get really interested in some specific issues around homelessness, around serious youth violence, um, and also around... This is very niche, but the electoral reform and democratic voting systems. I've always had a sense of fairness. And even as someone who knew nothing about politics, it just struck me as really weird that my vote counted differently depending on where I lived. Anyway, to answer the question directly, I did more and more political theatre. And then at some point, I just thought uh, telling stories is really important. And actually, it's probably one of the most important things. But changing the story is also really important. And so I started to get more involved. So to begin with, you got involved in the Liberal Democrats. Talk, talk about how you, how you got involved there and how you decided to change after some time in that party to the Green Party. I got more involved because actually just links to the last answer. But, uh, the biggest thing that seemed like the thing that needed to change most urgently was the voting system. Now, I know for some people that sounds like a very privileged answer because we've got um, poverty, we've got homelessness. Um, we've got some huge issues facing people that seem a lot more concrete and real than the abstract discussion about what voting system do we use uh, at elections. But actually, when you have a bit of time and you can kind of get that wider picture, it's really clear to me, and that's why I talk about it so often, that you can't change those really serious things. You can't find everyone at home. You can't make sure that everyone's got a job or even if they've got not got a job, that they're not living in poverty without making sure that the people who make those decisions, i.e. the politicians, can be held accountable and there isn't a culture of safe seats. And the Liberal Democrats at the time were the party who were talking about it. Now, that's not a slight of the Green Party because I will defend the Green Party. You'll be unsurprised to know. But I think at that time, they weren't in the place that they are now, which is with much more representation. They had tiny amounts of airtime. And with that tiny amount of airtime, they were always talking about the climate emergency quite rightly too. But um, although I cared about the climate emergency, it was always clear to me that you can't tackle the climate emergency until you've got a fair voting system. So I joined the Liberal Democrats. Um, and that's not like, I think when people um, change parties, you often expect them to slag off the old party or have all sorts of kind of negative things. I don't have a huge issue with the Liberal Democrats. I think a lot of the decisions they made in the coalition were clearly problematic for so many people. So that's one thing that I'm talking about, their party and ethos as a whole. I think those were Nick Clegg things, and I think that's important to separate from, from the party. I do think what he did on tuition fees and the breaking of the promise was the really serious issue. It was that breaking of trust that I think has had repercussions in our politics throughout. Um, while I was in the Liberal Democrats as a member for about two years, um, I started to do um, hustings um, for uh, local parties where they often have candidates, and it's the same in the Green Party and sometimes in the Labour and Tory Party too, where they don't expect to win. So the candidates are what we call paper candidates, the candidates who go on paper, but you're not expecting them to win. And so often in areas they had paper candidates where they just didn't want to do hustings because they didn't want to do debates. Um, so I did loads of debates. Um, and actually my first ever debate was with Natalie Bennett, who was the leader of the Green Party at the time, and Keir Starmer, who was leader of the Labour Party at the time. So it was an interesting first debate to, to have in politics. And actually, I'm going to be cocky and say, looking back, although it was my first time, I went at head and shoulders. And that was only because 
Um, there was lots of students in the audience when I started that debate by explaining it was my first debate ever in politics. I didn't, you know, hugely know a huge amount about these issues, but I was listening and just going to speak from the heart. And it was really quickly very obvious that people responded to that really, really well. And um, Natalie was great, and I think she was a fantastic leader. And she was doing both running for MP in Camden at the time, or holding the St Pancras, and being a party leader. So I think it was just her plate was incredibly full. And Keir Starmer, or maybe we'll get onto this later on in the conversation, but I think he's someone who's deeply unimpressive. I don't have a huge issue with some of his values. We obviously share some values, but I think he's always been like a kind of corporate middle management leader. And it was really obvious then, even then in those debates, I remember we did one at UCL and there's a question about cannabis. And it's always really been obvious to me that we should legalize cannabis. That was an easy thing to say. And he just would not answer the question. And I remember students starting to boo him. Um, and so even then, this was in 2015, it was uh, 2016, sorry, 24, whenever the election, election was, it was really clear that um, Keir Starmer didn't have that kind of traction that you needed uh, on some of those issues. Uh, but to round the story up, uh, Natalie Bennett often couldn't go to those debates because she was around the country being party leader. So they put um, a green activist at the time who I didn't know very well called Sean Berry, who was later on Green Party co-leader and also is now my colleague in the London Assembly. And we had lots of debates together. And I just kept coming home from those debates and saying to my boyfriend, um, I really, you know, Sean's, Sean's got it right. And I, I can't find a single good reason not to vote green despite the fact that I'm in the Liberal Democrats um, because on so many issues she's just in the right place and I just hadn't really noticed the Green Party before uh, in quite the same way and so uh, despite having done debates in those elections I ended up voting green then I left the Liberal Democrats and for a little while I wasn't attached to any party and in fact I did one election uh, two years later so the Theresa May election I ended up canvassing uh, or supporting online Clive Lewis I ended up um, uh, doing some phone calling for Liberal Democrats, and then I went and voted for Sean Barry uh, in my local area on the Green List. So I think that was the Progressive Alliance uh, right there in 2017. Uh, but after that, uh, and largely it was around Brexit, it became increasingly obvious that the Green Party kind of got more profile, and I heard from more of their activists, and particularly from Caroline Lucas and Sean Barry and John Bartley at the time, that actually that was where my home was. I've joined, and it's been incredible ever since. But that was kind of the, the complicated journey to get there. It's amazing to hear from you about your political journey. There's so much that's happened there. I can really relate to your experience as a paper candidate. I think I'm the only one of the uh, hosts of this podcast who's had an experience of putting myself forward for election. And I understand what it's like. And it's such an amazing opportunity. Uh, something I was just wondering is that shift from, you know, obviously being a party activist to putting yourself forward seriously for an elected position, you know, going from that sort of paper candidacy to being a member of the London Assembly, what's that process been like for you? And how do you feel uh, you were accepted into the party? And what was it like, you know, being an outsider and coming in and being able to shape the party and then successfully being elected? What's that process been like? Um, it's been amazing. There's no other real word for it in terms of there's a, and I would encourage anyone to, to get involved in politics, particularly those people who have underrepresented voices or from minority groups, because we need more people in politics who aren't the obvious usual suspects that you know happens constantly um, and I think the big thing for me was that for so long I was kind of online and tweeting and making noise and signing petitions and going on protests and all of those things are important so I'm not um, uh, begrudging any of those things at all and in fact even now I'm elected I continue to do those things because they hold a really important part in the democratic space but ultimately I don't I can't think of a bigger privilege then someone contacted me out of the blue or me meeting someone at a protest and says, I have this problem, uh, this is happening, can you help? Now, you have to be really careful when you're elected, especially in a smaller party, because you can become very busy very quickly, just helping everyone with their problems all the time um, and missing kind of the bigger picture. And so helping people with problems is really important. But I'd say that even higher priority is being able to see the systemic patterns in people's problems so if you start to hear people are having recurring problems yes absolutely help those individual people because individual problems are really important but also i think it's your job and your role as someone elected to then take a step back and go how could the system change right now what could government do or regional government or local government um, or what could the media be doing differently to highlight this and how can we make sure that there's a change here so 
I think it's about being relentlessly focused, about making sure that you have goals and that you never lose touch with the reasons that you got there in the first place. So you actually have to um, constantly engage with that empathy to remember these, you know, uh, you're very often talking to people who are human beings, who have families, who have these difficulties, who don't want to hear sometimes that, uh, this isn't in your remit, remit or this isn't something that the London Assembly can handle or this isn't something that your MP can do, but you could talk to your councillor and these endless bureaucratic things. But actually, I think it's always putting yourself in the perspective of the person who is coming to you with the problem, who doesn't care what party you're from. They don't care what you're representing. They just want their problem to go away. So you've got to help with that bit. But then you've got to look at the systemic change so you don't see people keep having that same problem and actually make sure the problem can change and, and they don't have to have that problem again. I think you've just talked about like the kind of bigger issues in our politics at the moment. Like you'll be aware the Green Party is quite a small party. And aside from the pursuit of like a form of PR, proportional representation, aside from like the pursuit of that, what role do you think the Green Party can have in solving these big systemic issues when they are such a like a small part of our politics? Yeah, so um, I uh, challenge the premise of the question a little bit because they're a small part of the politics in terms of a smaller party, but actually I think consistently both in national government, but also particularly in the London Assembly, uh, the Green Party frequently show the difference that it makes when you've got a Green in the room. So although we're smaller in number in terms of election, I think we have a massive influence and difference in the conversation. And I think that's really important. So the obvious one is on the climate emergency. The Green Party have been talking about this for decades. And again, from the story I just told you, way before I joined the party, uh, the Green Party were out there front and centre. So that's not me taking personal credit on that. That is the party's history and standing on the shoulders of giants that they have been consistently right, whether it's on the carbon emissions, mitigation, adaptation, whether it's on some of the newer issues that the media are starting to talk about now, like toxic air and making sure that our air is clean and also on linking all of those things as fundamentally social justice issues so i think the green movement not the green party but for decades often talked about polar bears and ice caps and of course those things are really important because you know ice caps are melting etc etc i think we know about that particularly from david attenborough shows but what hasn't been talked about as much as things as simple as in london you've got places like newham newham has uh, one of the highest uh, majority uh, ethnic minority populations and also the highest uh, group of people from low-income households they also have the most toxic air in london now that's not a coincidence we're seeing those patterns over and over again where does a local government or a regional government decide to put an incinerator? Frequently, their uh, incinerators are put in communities where there's black people or people from working class backgrounds, because frequently they look for groups who have got less representation, who don't have an uh, easy chance to be able to kick up a fuss, and they can push those things through the back door. Social media, more representation, all of those things are helping now because those things are pushing up the agenda. But the patterns are still there of ignoring uh, underrepresented voices. So I think that's a huge role for the Green Party to play is make sure no voices are missed, whether that's we're talking about racial divides or where we're talking about class divides, making sure that actually uh, those people who are vulnerable are from a minority group and or both, and making sure that we are amplifying, amplifying their voices and giving them voices. On the London Assembly, I think it's, uh, it couldn't be clearer how many times, and I think Sadiq Khan has referenced this to me several times now, where I have brought up an issue and he has been quite canny in saying, you know, I have to credit the Green Party. You have pushed me on this or you have been talking about this and I've changed my mind on that. And I could give plenty of examples uh, with that. I don't want to be too local because I don't want to draw people off the podcast entirely. But simple things like recently, uh, not recently, for decades, we've been campaigning on something called road user charging, which is where people don't get charged by the congestion charge, but actually they're charged based on the type of vehicle they've got, the emissions, the accessibility to public transport. So this is about genuine fairness. So it's both a social justice issue and, of course, it's good for the environment too. The mayor initially said no, then he said, okay, I'm looking at it. And recently he announced that yes, it's gonna happen, although he's saying before 2040, uh, sorry, 2030, and we can't wait that long. So we're still pushing him you know, to do it more urgently. But I think it's things like that where he does credit the Greens and actually it's really clear how often in the conversation we've changed things. And then finally, just one other example on a national level, uh, the police crime courts and sentencing bill uh, was going through the House of Lords. It looked like Labour were going to abstain. We couldn't get any noise from whatsoever. Myself, Caroline Lucas, Natalie Bennett and Jenny Jones, who are two peers in the House of Lords, all went to Parliament, spoke at a rally, kicked up a fuss, got journalists involved, and then Labour ended up voting against. And now those things have fallen and won't be in the House of Commons. And these are things as important as people's right to protest. So I think those are just some examples where just a few people in the Green Party with our elected uh, members, but also our, you know, 
a not inconsiderable amount of activists who are very active have changed things. And just a final thing I'd say in the answer, and it's not a pop at Labour, but it's just noticeable, is that Green Party activists are active. They're out on people's doorsteps and they're doing things. That was the same under Jeremy Corbyn with Labour. I'm not convinced it is with Keir Starmer anymore. I think it's quite noticeable when I see canvassing. I'm talking in London. I, I can't talk for the rest of the country right now, but it's quite noticeable on the doorstep. Uh, the much less interest and enthusiasm about going out and knocking uh, for their candidates. Although admittedly, we're not in the general election. Maybe that will change. When it, when it comes to obviously, you, you have, as you've mentioned, formidable influence in terms of your activism. But when it comes to the, the numbers in terms of party stature, do you feel as if that there's often the larger parties, specifically more Labour than the Conservative, trying to kind of take credit or even overlap your own politics to try to galvanise support from that stretch? Yeah, I mean, it's constant. Uh, it's literally the, the daily life. And a lot of the time, I don't mind. And again, I've said this to the mayor in the London level. I've said to him frequently, you know, you keep stealing our ideas and you're very welcome because they're good ideas. And ultimately, even more than seeing more Greens elected, what do I want from a society? I want a fairer society that's green, where we're dealing with a climate emergency that has, uh, I was going to say, less racial injustice, no racial injustice, ideally, uh, where we've settled the gender pay gap, where women are given respect. You know, all of the things that we would want, both from social justice and environmental justice. So if other parties want to steal those ideas, I'm all good with that. Um, it is frustrating, though, when it comes to election time, the amount of people who go, you know, the Greens are really right on so many things. And actually, I'd love to vote for the Greens. But this first pass for post voting system means I've got to stop the Tories. Um, or occasionally, you know, I've got to stop Labour, but usually it's I've got to stop the Tories. Um, and I get that and I understand it. And it's very difficult when it comes around to election time to navigate um, because there are simple areas where, uh, you know, it's razor thin between Conservatives and Labour, although there's other places where it's not razor thin at all and you still hear those lines coming out of politicians. So, again, a lot of it comes down to the broken voting system. But on the wider point, if people want to steal good green ideas, then that's one of the big reasons I'm in politics is to find good, good ideas outside of politics uh, that often come from campaign groups or community groups give them amplification, give them noise, and then get someone to, to take them on. And ultimately, I don't want to be churlish. You know, if we're not fully credited, it's unfair. But, you know, we'll get on with it as long as the idea is good. Yeah, it's really interesting hearing you talk about uh, the way in which uh, values are really important, as well as actually having, um, you know, more representation and obviously the importance of having Greens in the room. Kind of building on that, what do you think the sort of strategy should be for the Green Party moving forwards in terms of, you know, can it build itself up as more than just a party that talks about environmentalism? And equally, we've also seen uh, a huge amount of Greens elected in traditionally quite rural areas, conservative voting areas, as well as in London, which is obviously known for being really progressive. So what's the sort of future strategy for the Green Party? And are you trying to become the next big third party or how are you seeking to influence uh, policies and, and get more representation? Yeah, so there's loads of answers to that. And one of the biggest differences from London to nationally, I'll do with London one very quickly, but in London, I think you know, it's pretty clear we are London's third party. Uh, we've got more assembly members than the Liberal Democrats. We often poll higher than the Liberal Democrats um, in London polling. Um, and also when you look on the assembly, I think our influence there, uh, most journalists would recognise has been much more considerable uh, than that. I don't want to you know, be uh, discourteous to my Liberal Democrat colleagues, Caroline Pigeon and Hina Bakaria are both uh, good politicians. But I think that myself, Sean uh, Berry and Caroline Russell just seem to have a particular momentum in London at the moment. And we saw that at the last elections and I don't think it'll be any different this May. I'm hoping people will vote green in London. Uh, widening that out though, I think the challenge is, is fairer. Again, I challenge the premise of the question a little bit. I think for a long time, Greens have been talking about things other than the environment. It's just often the media don't report on them. Um, I'm frequently doing campaigns that aren't just environmental. And actually the media kind of sometimes look a little bit interested. But when there's an environment story, they're straight on the phone and say, oh, can you come on and talk about uh, the climate? Or can you come on and talk about COP26? And of course, I'm very happy to do that. Those things are urgent and need to happen. Uh, but actually, it means that so much of our work on the assembly often gets missed by journalists. So to give you an example, Sean Barry's been doing loads of work on rent control. And in fact, uh, she was pushing the mayor on that. And Mayor Sadiq Khan for a long time where he said flat out no. And then at the election, he changed his manifesto to say he'd consider them and we're still pushing him on that. So that's one thing, for example, that we've been doing. On another thing on policing, we've been very tight on policing for a long time and doing things like challenging stop and search. 
And also it's a bit of a niche issue, but it's an important one. Police often use images of knives um, on social media to, um, it's hard to even say why, because it seems so ridiculous, but to scare off young people uh, to know how dangerous knives are. They show, you know, these really big knives in your area, but actually from all the work we've done with young people, a young person who lives on a state or feels worried for their safety sees this knife and can too often get caught in a spiral of, oh, I need a bigger knife or I need to carry a knife because obviously people have knives on this estate. And actually the police commissioner and the mayor have started to take up that campaign now and now they're looking into it and we're seeing much less images of knives on social media. So again, it's a, a niche issue, but it's one that the Green Party have really been pushing in London. We've been winning on, but the journalists seem less interested in it because we're the Green Party and it's not about the environment. So we do have a little bit of that frame that we've got to keep challenging. And I think the only way to do that is something I'm always trying to do is by being credible, by winning, by showing we've got a good track record and just being out there and, and being consistent on, on issues that matter to us. Um, on the wider strategy, I think we clearly need more representation in parliament and that's very difficult under first past the post. However, our new uh, co-leader, Carla Denya, uh, is our target candidate in Bristol West, which is our next target seat uh, to win our second MP. And um, people will often reference the huge majority that Sangam Debonair has in Bristol West. Um, but actually, that was under Jeremy Corbyn. And we know that people in Bristol, uh, my partner lives in Bristol, so I'm often in there, do not think hugely of uh, Keir Starmer. And Thangam Debonair isn't particularly a politician that they particularly love. I'm sure some people do, but, you know, she's not an absolutely loved uh, politician in the same way that people in Bristol West may have loved uh, Jeremy Corbyn when he was leader. So, uh, and also Carla Denny has been brilliant and she's also been made co-leader. So she has a bigger profile now and obviously that still needs to grow. So I think there's an opportunity there to get another MP, but your question still is fair, is two MPs is not going to stop a climate emergency. So uh, for me, the strategy is very clear, which is we need to change the voting system. And that is not just to get green MPs, that is to stop future Tory governments, but it's not even just to get green MPs and stop future Tory governments. It's because it's fair and it's the right thing to do. Everyone's vote should count equally. Uh, seats should match votes, so we should make votes matter and get proportional representation. It feels like every time I talk to you, you can you can't have anything. You find some way to link it back to proportional representation. It's great. I love it. Uh, but I was wanted to ask about as a kind of local politics nerd. I see you, I see the Green Party, campaigning and winning, or you know, doing well in local elections. And I think. I mean, especially where I'm from in Bolton, the kind of ability to just focus really hard on specific wards, at least where I'm from, the Lib Dems and nail that. But then it seems like the Greens are picking it up as well. What impact does winning local elections and kind of because you have so few MPs and not that many traditionally high profile people, what impact does kind of winning at a grassroots level have on your party structure? Yeah, because, I like this. Like, discourse in like the Labour Party and the Conservative Party is shaped by MPs, but how does that work in the Greens? Yeah, so, um, you know, I'm not going to be disingenuous. I'd love more MPs. However, and I do think it's a really important point, that embedded in Green philosophy is absolutely the idea of community values and grassroots organising. So rather than the idea of politicians, you know, come in and do a top-down approach, it's about bringing people together. Uh, just last week on the Assembly, I brought in a motion about universal basic income and to have a pilot scheme of it. Sadiq Khan had been quite warm to me about this um, when I'd spoken to him about it publicly at Mayor's Question Time. So I brought a motion to a full Assembly meeting with and uh, the leader of uh, Labour in London, Len Deval, uh, completely rejected the idea of a pilot and he said you can create little autonomous fiefdoms and I think what that was really revealing of was this very top-down approach to politics of we come up with the answers and people get them and they've got to stick to the rules as opposed to actually getting out there and doing genuinely community involvement and, and engaging with people so I think that's a real green value so then on local elections I think that naturally fits our values in terms of making sure that the small areas where we say actually, let's look at when your bins are collected. Let's look at what waste looks like in this area. Let's look at how we can green up our streets. Let's plant more trees. Let's make sure that people are represented, make sure that they have good access to power, that they're not corruption on the local council. Let's make sure uh, things like that we're not building a new incinerator in the local area. So I think all of these issues are local issues, um, but they really matter to people's day-to-day -day life. And the media don't often focus on them. They focus, understandably, on the much bigger stories about Partygate, about Ukraine and Russia, um, about uh, anything that might be happening in the news that is dominating people's attention, Brexit being another example. And that's not dismissing those things, they're really important. Uh, but actually what really matters to people 
who are um, paying rent, who are getting the kids to school on time, who are trying to get to work and want good public transport or safe cycle lanes um, and clean air is actually who is elected um, for them in local government. And I don't think this is just a party issue. I know uh, some local Labour councillors who are, can be fantastic and also uh, won't often say this, but some Conservatives who care deeply about their local community. But I know too often there are too many people in local government who see it as a step stepping stone to becoming an MP or to bigger things or just aren't present for their local community. And I think it's absolutely deeply embedded in green values that uh, being a local councillor or an assembly member or anything to do with local or regional government is not a stepping stone to other things. Of course, you can be doing it on your way to other places, but actually it's a job in and of itself to make sure that you're doing good things for the community and actually building up. Uh, people's sense of empowerment and also you know a, a different view towards the Green Party I think people who are helped by a Green Party politician then start to go oh okay so it's not just about the environment although again it's really important as I always say uh, but actually they're there and they can do good practical things and help. Now obviously you are a member in London so I'm going to ask you a question about London um, though obviously Zoe's here so we're going to talk broader as well um but am i only here so you talk about the north no it's just a very you thing um (laughs) (laughs) well as as the only southerner here i think it's my duty to talk about this but um at the moment a lot of people talking about the standard of living and the uh, cost of living specifically now when london even before this uh, crisis has been spoken about already had its own individual crisis of cost of living what do you think is the reasonable solution to kind of help that? Because, you know, there have been talks about various different fees and, and various different money being spent. But, you know, what concrete policies do you, uh, do you think would be best suited? Yeah, so I think there's two questions there. One is the London versus the rest of the country question, and then there's the cost of living question. So let's start with the geography one. It's not London versus the rest of the country. Boris Johnson has tried to uh, paint this idea very quickly. And it's... Um, It's a bit like Nigel Farage rallying against billionaires. It's just a very bizarre position when Boris Johnson has been mayor of London and is now the prime minister. And while he was mayor of London, he was a real champion of London. And just very slowly, he's trying to turn the rest of the country against London because he thinks that will go down well in red wall seats. And it might do because there's a very easy narrative there when people are struggling in some of those seats uh, in terms of the, the geography and the area and the demographics. And then you can point to London and yes, absolutely, there's huge amounts of wealth in London. And you can see how that can very quickly turn people angry. But as well as there being huge amounts of wealth in London, there are huge amounts of poverty. In fact, in some areas of London, right next to the huge amounts of wealth, you have just as much poverty, if not worse, than in the North. Now, the North has huge problems too, and we'll come on to that in a moment. But the point is here is this is not about pitting towns and cities against each other. This should actually be about towns and cities and anywhere in the UK, whether you're in England, Wales, Scotland or Northern Ireland, actually looking at what a shocking government we have and how Downing Street are running the country and not turning against each other, but actually recognising that this prime minister does not care about anyone apart from his own interests. And I was going to say his own party, but I don't think he even cares about his own party anymore uh, based on his behaviour recently. Uh, So I think that's the first important thing. And this idea of levelling up is is not an awful idea for everyone to level up. You don't need to knock places down to level up. You need to give places investment. You need to make sure that you're nurturing things. You need to make sure you're not cutting local council services. But the blaming of London does worry me sometimes. Um, Very often on Twitter, for instance, I'll be talking about uh, London on something on an interview. And immediately I'll get someone under, under me saying, why are we talking about London all the time? I always go, well, one, I'm a London Assembly member, so it's literally my job to to champion London. But two, uh, we talk about London because it is a huge hub of economic activity. And actually what happens in London does matter to the rest of the country. That doesn't mean we ignore the rest of the country. It doesn't mean that uh, I don't think that power should be shifted uh, potentially to the north or to other places. I'd love to see a parliament that moved around, for instance. I've always thought that's a really interesting idea. Um, But it shouldn't be about pitting these two things against each other. Uh, To the substance of your question, um, it's a universal basic income. I think we need a different way of handling social security in this country. And we know that the current economic system has failed. 
whether that's the loss in the universal credit effort lift, whether it was the unevenness of furlough, how some people did quite well of it, how of it, but lots of people, uh, particularly artists, musicians, dancers, actors, and people who were friends in my previous job, who were absolutely screwed over um, and, you know, were struggling and are still really struggling. Not to mention those people who didn't have any jobs at all, who feel like they've got no safety net. So uh, what is happening right now is not sustainable and the universal basic income could change all of that. We need political courage and credit to Labour in Wales uh, with Mark Drakeford, who is piloting that this now with care leavers. So again, it's not necessarily a party political thing. It's about political courage and political courage can happen in any party. Uh, but right now in London, uh, Labour are not demonstrating political courage and I'm there to give them some. And this is another typical example of I am honestly fine with Labour taking the idea of UBI running with it and never mentioning me again with it because it would be amazing to see it happen um but at the moment they, they just keep shutting it down apart from the met you know i should be um uh, gracious to sadiq who we still have a meeting uh, to talk about it and i imagine if he gets on board london labor will qu quickly get on board too but i just wish they'd show a bit more imagination and be an ally in this and not an obstacle i should come in on that if, if you don't mind you know ubi is a very controversial policy to, to many so i kind of want to come back on that a bit and, and bring the point of view that UBI in many ways, though, you know, giving people basic income is somewhat short-term beneficial, that the long-term impacts of it in terms of inflation, in terms of, you know, sourcing the money and, and, and kind of in a long-term sustainable way, you know, is that, is, is that really the, the, the solution if in long-term it may have worse effects? Yes, uh, so I'm challenging the question again. This is the thing I'm doing today, apparently. Uh, but I just commissioned uh, polling with YouGov uh, in London uh, just two weeks ago. 50% of Londoners now support universal basic income with only 22% opposed. So I'm not sure it is entirely controversial. And actually, the universal basic income, when polled in the UK, shows similar figures, if not even better, actually. Uh, what I can't quite work out yet is why the numbers are a little bit lower in London. Um, I can only imagine that maybe because there's more wealth in London uh, in certain areas, that's more people worrying that they might be disproportionately affected. But I'd need to do more research to know exactly that. But the wider point is that universal basic income increasingly uh, polls really well. Um, in terms of the inflation, I think you know there's lots of different ways of doing universal basic income. I really recommend Guy Standing's book, which is called um, Battling Eight Giants which talks about how universal basic income would not just tackle poverty, but also would deal with things like gender inequality, would make sure that people had a greater purpose in life, a greater sense of well-being, that would improve people's nutrition. Like there's so many factors that would improve with the universal basic income. And um, I think in terms of the money and how you fund it, uh, at the moment, the universal credit system is hugely expensive, uh, incredibly bureaucratic. We're spending a huge amount of money that dehumanizes people, not just for people who are claiming the universal credit, um, which it's incredibly dehumanizing for a lot of them, but also actually the people who are paid and given those jobs to find reasons not to give people money or to sanction people. And frequently, I imagine those people don't particularly those enjoy those jobs too. So I think there's this whole kind of industry that we've built that is costly, that doesn't work, and is uh, allowing too many people to fall into poverty. So I think this is a whole way of looking at completely a different way of how we manage society in terms of the economic benefits and the ways that we do things. Um, in terms of uh, making sure that, that things balance, I think that becomes a numbers game about how much do you set a UBI at, uh, where do you do it weekly or monthly? And one of my suggestions has always been that we should have a citizens assembly. We look at lots of different models of how a universal basic income could work. Yes, there should be economists in the room. It's not good enough for citizens just to come together and come up with a model that doesn't work. But actually, we've seen around the world uh, models of universal basic income and pilots. And pretty much every pilot that has been done seriously around the world and has been monitored and has been results that have been uh, academically researched and then shared shows that it works. And the beautiful thing is it doesn't just work to take people out of poverty, although that's important enough, if the most important thing. It also does help people uh, eat better, have better access to education, and crucially with women's empowerment too. Too often if women are in domestic relationships, uh, they're domestically abusive, sorry, um, because their partner maybe has the money and isn't sharing it for whatever reason, this suddenly gives them a reason to get out. Now, that's not just always women. Obviously, that can happen to men too on the other way around, but I'm just talking about where the trends happen to be there. So anyway, universal basic income is something that gets me very excited because I think it could solve so many problems of the ways that we do things right now. It's not a panacea, neither is proportional representation. It won't solve all our problems, 
But actually, it's when you start to see these things come together along with the Green New Deal, you can see a package that could genuinely change Britain and actually make us a fairer society. In classic me style, I'm now going to talk about the North because of course I am. But I can also link it to London because King Burnham, Andy Burnham, I'm pretty sure writes every two weeks for like the Evening Standard, which I'm pretty sure is like a London paper. He's done like multiple, during the whole like COVID fiasco, he would just keep writing things being like, I don't hate London. London isn't evil. Like talking about how we need to not just like, don't make the whole world, don't make everyone just hate London. Talk about how like we need to like establish regional devolution and spread out the wealth. How do you think we can, how do you think we can find a way to make people not hate London and like see it as a kind of, all of us against the elite and not just London, like London against everybody else. Cause I think it's like, it worked with Farage as well. Farage just made us all hate like what we don't know. And I think it's a really like successful political strategy, but it needs to be tackled because Londoners aren't the problem. Like the elites are, the government is. Totally. And, and now I'm a Mancunian. So this, you know, I'm in that interesting position. Stop of... saying you're a Manc. You're from Bury. I'm not having this. <laughs> Bury Stop it. No one's saying no one's saying this. Oh, uh, you're from Bolton. You're a man. No. Ooh, actually, I, I do. I always remind yeah, her she's on. from Greater not Manchester. From you do not count. I no, always remind her she's from Greater Manchester and I not from you. Lancashire. And it's the greatest thing. She hates it. You're from Bury. Come on. My family are in Withenshaw now, actually, as well. Right, so okay, you love it more, then. Okay, well, <laughs> um, one of the, the cool moments for me at COP26 was ITV News interviewed me and then they put together a little montage and I was in between Andy Burnham and Nicola Sturgeon and I thought that's quite a, a cool place to be within, within this um, uh, montage. And what I really loved about montages we were literally all talking about regional devolution. And I think ITV News was making the point that actually where, wherever you come from in the country, there are people banging the drum to say, actually, regions should have more power. And it's just obvious. I mean... Even if we had a green government, which I would love, and we had Caroline Lucas as prime minister and um, maybe even a couple of Labour ministers in the, in the cabinet, because I think we'd, we'd do a Jacinda Ardern and share it out there. Um, uh, or maybe it'd be a Labour government and you'd, you'd pepper a couple of greens in, in the cabinet. But anyway, a, a genuine collaborative politics. I would still want more powers uh, for regions and local areas because it's just obvious that people in the communities know best what their community needs. It doesn't mean you don't need government and you don't need more kind of regional and national um, politics. Of course you do, you need those big strategic pictures, but ultimately the more power you can give to local areas, the better because that's more power to someone in their local ward or even more ideally on their local street and that they know their neighbors. And we kind of saw this happening in a weird kind of way during the pandemic when people were setting up these WhatsApp groups and these mutual aid groups. The people were taking this into their own hands and going, you know, they were seeing Boris Johnson or who, who I was going to say whatever Muppet was on TV that night. That's not very kind, but anyway, I still said it um, uh, from the government talking about the pandemic. And I think people just realised instinctively that they did not have their best interests at heart or that they didn't understand what was going on in their local streets. So people started to take matters into their own hands and look after people in a crisis. Um, I was about to say we're not in a crisis. Of course, we're still in a crisis. There's lots of crises going on at the moment, but it doesn't feel as immediate a crisis as when the pandemic first hit. Um, but I still would like to see that kind of attitude carried over into communities where people are given more power um, to do things. And something I say about London all the time, uh, Kay Burley caught me out on Sky News the other day. She didn't catch me out, but I could see what she was pushing me into, which was to say London needs more money. And there was no way that London needs more money was going to come out of my mouth on national TV. I know how much people hate London. But and also the point is London does not need more money. London needs more powers so it can generate its own money. And it's the same with with any area. I don't think it's about asking for cash grants. I think it's about saying, actually, we should have access to ways of controlling our own levers, our own mechanisms in our area and making sure that we can decide what our bud budgets are and how those are spent. Now, of course, that happens to a certain amount in London, it happens in Manchester, but not nearly enough. And actually, I, I can't talk at length about Manchester, to be honest, because I'm not uh, a fay with all the intricate details. But in London, and I'd be very surprised if it's different in Manchester, the mayor of London does not have the powers he needs, which is absolutely absurd. He has a huge amount of soft power, and I don't think he uses that you know, as strong as he could, and that's a lot of what I bang on about. But actually, when Sadiq Khan says sometimes, you know, I don't have the power to do this, I need you to lobby government for that. I'm, I'm totally sympathetic for that argument, and he should have 
more power. There's some very basic things that he can't do that he should absolutely be able to do, but the government hold the levers and they're, they're not willing to let go of that power. And I think that's dangerous because the Tories should see that, you know, one day again, that I'm not sure we'll ever have a Labour government, but we might have a, a hung parliament and uh, a, a different government that isn't a conservative government uh, or a coalition of, of some sort. And the Conservatives are going to be out of power and they're going to really wish on those councils they have more power. So I just wish they could all have a little bit more foresight and go, it shouldn't be all or nothing all the time. It should actually be up to communities and people in those communities to be able to have the power uh, to do what they need to do. And I think that's one of the ways we could start to smooth over uh, some of the issues. But right now, I think number 10 has far too much power and that too often becomes synonymous with London has too much power when that's not true, but it's convenient for Downing Street to make everyone assume that London has too much power because then that's what well, it takes. I don't know how many MPs London has, about 70. So if you go to 580 MPs, that's 580 MPs who represent areas that are annoyed with London. And that's kind of strategically a smart thing to do in the short term, but long term, it's, it's, it's a disaster for creating division. Can I just say, like, what you said about Sadiq Khan not having enough power makes complete sense to me, because, like, Andy Burnham, I'm not actually sure what powers he has, I just know the Greater Manchester Spatial Framework, which he worked on for ages and ages and ages, fell because one council wouldn't pass it, and then he has, like, he tried, he tried to get loads of money for something, I think just generic, I don't, it will be for something, but he wanted to get loads of money out of government to like for leveling up base. Oh, it was for public transport. He went to Tory party conference and tried to lobby them for public transport. But like the fact that he's mayor of Britain, Manchester, and he has to go to Tory party conference to ask them to give him money for his own area that we all know it needs. Like, as you know, Northern trains, we just get the South cast offs. So the fact that like, it just feels ridiculous to me that Andy Burnham has so little power because he's Andy Burnham. He like he stands at the front of he gets national media and he's such a big deal for that standing. He represents the North, like, and obviously great. He's basically, the Daenerys, isn't he? Yeah, he should, he should have more power. It's Andy Burnham. Come on, um, should be more coherent. But I just love Andy Burnham. I think one of the dominating issues, uh, uh, dominating images of the last few years for me was Andy Burnham stood in his anorak where I think someone showed him a mobile phone to show yeah, that exactly. North was going on, Manchester was going into lockdown again. And that was the way he found out. And I think, you know, that is just not a way to run a country. I think a word of caution here, though, or maybe not caution, but just more gossip, is that, you know, I do believe that Andy Burnham and Sadiq Khan genuinely don't hate the rest of the country. And I do think both of them have leadership ambitions. And they know full well that they won't be mayors forever. And at some point, they might want to go back into parliament. And at some point, they might want to be leader. And when they become leader, they're going to have to very quickly give a much more kind of consensus building story that isn't just about the city they represent. So I do think there's some strategy going on there for their personal ambition. But that doesn't take away from either of them. Um, you know, what they're saying on and that matter is, is totally right. And I agree with it. I don't know if I call him King Burnham, but. Oh, no, I, I shouldn't say that. I think it's interesting what you said about, like, the leadership ambitions, because Andy Burnham is nationalising the buses, and it all yeah. happens, it all kind of comes into fruition in 2023. And you're just like, hmm, how very convenient. What That's else true, is yeah. happening in 2023? Oh, the next general election, probably. Who would have thought Sadiq that was happening? Keep... Sorry, Sadiq Khan keeps visiting Yorkshire. Uh, because it's where a lot of our buses are made in London, apart from the buses. I do think there's a genuine, you know, let's champion the buses, but also I don't think Sadiq Khan hates being seen in Yorkshire doing good things and uh, championing Yorkshire businesses. So, yeah, I, I think there's there's some ulterior motives there. But, yeah, I don't think that's the worst thing in the world for when politicians um, recognise that they're good at what they do and that they want to expand and they want to uh, have higher ambitions for themselves. I do worry in politics sometimes that's seen as a dirty thing. Um, I think it's dirty when you do it in the Boris Johnson way, which is to have denied it for so long, and also to clearly want the power just to have the power. Um, but it's rare and this nice about Sadiq Khan. Um, but I do believe that Sadiq Khan and Andy Burnham want a better society. I just don't always agree with their visions for it. And I think sometimes it lacks imagination, it lacks foresight. But, you know, I imagine they want to be leaders because they want to make people's lives better. And I don't think that's something to be criticised. I think it's a really interesting point you're making about uh you know ambition but at the start you're also talking about consistency with your values and your voters and really being true to yourself and 
why you got into politics. I think it's interesting because, um, you know, on the news when Sean Berry uh, stepped down as as co-leader of the party, one of the things that she mentioned was inconsistency over things like trans rights. And I was just wondering, what's your message on issues of human rights, such as trans rights? And what's it like being a representative, having to navigate sometimes the more toxic elements of discourse around issues of human rights? And how do you find that? Yeah, so I think this is, you know, of all the things we've spoken about in this podcast, I think it's where uh, politicians like myself need to be nothing but so clear and I hate it when politicians say let us be clear because that usually means you know something very vague and muddy is coming so I'm trying to find a different phrase other than let's be clear but um I guess what what I'm saying is that um the words that I'm about to say should be taken as having no nuance at all and that's those words are trans rights are human rights um and that non-binary uh, identities are valid too and I don't think people should shy away from that. I don't think they should be awkward about that because they're worried about political strategy or they're worried about inflaming uh, feminist women's rights groups. I think we absolutely need to engage with women's rights groups who have um, good intentions and are well-intentioned and are not. Um, th- there's a real difference here between those groups who are flouting hate speech. And I think we don't engage with them. We challenge for hate speech. Then I do think there's a huge group in the middle who genuinely care um, about these issues, who are concerned, who are worried. And I think that's where we've always got to be always learning. We've got to be educating ourselves. Amelia Womack, uh, the deputy leader of the Green Party, um, always says, uh, I've often heard her say, uh, do you know who my favourite person is in the party? And it's a lady who lives in the north, of course it is, um, uh, called Anne Power, who I, I can't remember who, who uh, how old she is. I want to say in the 80s, but if Anne ever sees this for whatever reason, I apologise if she's like 55, but no, she's definitely, I think, uh, in the 80s. And she said uh, one night to Amelia while they were having a cup of cocoa after a, um, a day campaign, she said, do you know what I love about being in politics and being a political activist and being in the world, it's a sense that you're always learning, that you never fully know about everything. And people always have experiences that you won't understand, but you've got to stop and you've got to always learn. And I think, as I repeat, we need to be very careful that I'm not talking about that group that are just out to do hate speech. They're not always learning. And I think we've got to quite simply beat those people at elections and make sure that they don't have a public platform. Do you think that's different to a huge amount of people in the middle who just don't quite understand this issue yet, who haven't been engaged on, who haven't had a conversation or met someone who's uh, lived the trans experience and has that lived experience? But, you know, that group of people uh, often have had some of the worst experiences in life of prejudice, of hatred, who are vulnerable and sensitive. The very fact that the Conservative government, based on Donald Trump's model, chose that group of people to scapegoat. Uh, to create some narrow political advantage, to create divisiveness in society is totally unacceptable. Also, don't um, I'm not avoiding the challenge that you're making uh, to my party. I think what Sean, Sean was talking about there was um, institutional defensiveness. Um, so I think it was the same month that the police commissioner of the Met talked about um, a Daniel Morgan case. Uh, this is very niche, so I won't go off on it. But basically, it was a case where the commissioner had essentially said the Met were wrong at the time that they were defending the institution of the Met and not upholding the law. And I think, you know, some of that might be going on with Partygate as well, but that's a whole other topic. Um, But she talked about institutional defensiveness, where the institution becomes more important about defending your friends and defending the party in this case than uh, the people who are vulnerable and who need protecting. Now, I've had to sign something that says I won't publicly criticise members of my party, and, you know, I've signed to that. Those are the rules. I will I will do them. But what I absolutely won't do is give any vague or jarred answers that I agree with some of those things that those people are saying. And I would think it would be a lot better if those people who are saying these things uh, resigned and, to be honest, have no place in the party. And that's something without, you know, naming names and people can spend, you know, 30 seconds Googling to work out who I'm talking about. Uh, I, I couldn't be clearer um, about that. And I think, you know, that is more important than party politics. It's more important than who gets elected because why did you get into politics if it's not to protect the most vulnerable people and I'll stand with the LGBT community every single time. I'm, I'm going to move into a completely different subject uh, as I always tend to do. It's, this is my favourite topic, elections. Now, <laughs> I, I see your, your facial expression. I, I know everyone else felt that. 
It should be absolutely proportional representation, but this isn't about proportional representation, and I really hope you don't bring up in this because it's it's a really interesting thing that I found. Because I, I for a very long time ago, I did an article on uh, the Green Party, kind of looking at their election performances, and you know, in in one one thing we can assure is the difference was not proportional representation because um, of it was first past the post right the entire time. So uh, in 2015, the Green Party got their highest amount of vote share, but since then, haven't got as high a vote share. Why do you think that is? Yeah, so I think it's a couple of things. I think uh, the biggest one in 2017 was because uh, we went on a strategy of talking about progressive alliance. Um, and actually, I think I'm one of the people in the party that doesn't regret that. I think it was the right thing to do. I think it started a conversation that's still going on to this day about a more collaborative politics, about tactical voting, about a different way of doing things. I know you said it's not about proportional representation, but ultimately that is the end of that conversation. You know, that's where those things go. But I think when you're using your airtime to talk about the possibility of voting for other parties, that will inevitably start to erode your vote, as in people will not hear that people should vote green because we're the best on the environment, because we care about social justice issues, because we've been right for decades and we continue to have integrity and we're working on our local communities. Those are ultimately the messages, whatever election it is. We want to be getting out there. But what people were frequently hearing was, we understand that if you need to vote Labour or vote Liberal Democrats to stop the Conservatives because... Boris Johnson or Theresa May at the time as such a threat to the democracy and integrity of this country, then we understand that if you do that, we're just asking you to vote green if you're not in a marginal seat. And I can understand why that meant the message started to get um, blurred. And actually, I'm really proud that we did that because um, it meant that Theresa May at the time, she was meant to get this huge majority. And you'll remember, she took that huge gamble and actually very uh, nearly lost the election entirely you know she significantly lost i can't remember the exact amount of seats but it was a significant amount of seats that she lost and she was left with this weight of the majority and i think a lot of that was down to the green party and the liberal democrats who were speaking out about this um regularly uh every time we, we were on the media now we took a huge hit for that because there's something called short money which means that every single vote that you get across the country, even if you don't win a seat, effectively affects uh, your party's bank account and how much you've got for next elections. It also matters for when you get to local elections, how much media coverage you get um, based on your polling, all of those kind of things. So the Green Party took a huge hit for that, and it'll be very difficult to ever get us to sign up to something like that again because of what happened. And in 2019, we didn't quite do the same thing, but we had to unite to remain, which was all based around uh, challenging Brexit, but also progressive issues again. And there were lots of seats where we didn't stand at all uh, because we stood down for the Liberal Democrats applied Cymru. Now, it's really worth noting at this point that we worked so hard uh, to try and reach out to Jeremy Corbyn and be in an agreement and arrangement with the Labour Party to make sure that we got Jeremy Corbyn as Prime Minister, or at least uh, the Labour Party had a majority of seats and then who became Prime Minister would then be a different conversation. Uh, but the Labour Party refused to even respond to Sean Barry's emails or calls and just had no engagement with that whatsoever. Um, but I still think we did the right thing, which was to say, OK, we're going to be criticised for working for Liberal Democrats and not Labour, but we know we've done the right thing and we just need to keep communicating that. So that's one thing. I think that's going to have an effect on your vote if you... Um, tell people to vote for other parties. I think a second thing, and it's just being honest, is that um, the Labour Party in particular, but also the Liberal Democrats, have started to learn to wear green clothes. So start to learn to talk about the climate emergency, to talk about a Green New Deal. And again, I'm not churlish about that. I'm quite happy, to be honest, that climate change or climate emergency so get, so often gets centred in debates these days, and that's through lots of Green Party pushing. And I think the Green Party now have a new challenge, which is to say, it's great that they're talking about it, but ask them a few more questions about it, and very quickly they won't have the solutions. Or this is very often, I think, Starmer in particular, my perception is, sees this as like an issue to be dealt with, as opposed to radically reforming society because we have this emergency and it's an opportunity to make things better. There's a cartoon that I love that Caroline Lucas shares every like 20 minutes on Twitter, which is a climate change scientist at a big presentation. And uh, they're saying, you know, if we uh, have a Green New Deal, we'll have cleaner air, we'll have better jobs, we'll eliminate poverty, we'll have better um, racial equality in society, we'll have a more meaningful purpose. And then someone puts their hand up and says, yeah, but what happens if the climate's a hoax all the time? Uh, was the hoax all the time. And the point is, these things are all worth doing in and of themselves. Of course, the climate is not a hoax. 
but actually these things are worth doing to transform society anyway and i don't think Keir Starmer gets that so i think there's something important for the greens there in future to be making sure that we're really pointing out that we have the solutions to these problems that Labour are now identifying as problems but don't necessarily have the solutions for. So I think those are the two key things. It is less talking about other parties um, and why we need to stop the Conservatives and more front and centre. What are our green values and the fact that we care about environmental justice, but also social, racial, economic justice too. And second, I think it's about pointing out the benefits of the Green New Deal and how we've had the answers all along. Um. Well, also another interesting part was obviously within the Progressive Alliance and the Remain story, you had an alliance with Plaid Cymru. Now, obviously, Plaid Cymru are a separatist party. I just want to know, are you yourself a separatist or, you know, was it solely for that um, situation and not as a result of any deeper separatist or unionist ideals? Yeah, no, it was totally about that situation. I think, you know, uh, when you look at Plaid Cymru and the SNP too, you know, they're um, parties that clearly have progressive values on a lot of issues and we, we share a lot of values with not necessarily uh, the independence movement. If you're asking me a personal opinion, so not necessarily speaking as a Green Party spokesperson, because I don't think we have an official party policy on this. Um, actually, my opinion would be exactly what I think the policy would be that I need to check which is that's a matter for Wales and Scotland. And actually, ultimately, we want to support the process of democracy and the people who live in those areas should decide. But ultimately, it is not a sustainable situation that the people of Scotland, I think, poll frequently for independence and the Conservative government refused to give them that because they had a referendum. I think, you know, it's the same thing with the people's vote. That if, you know, it's looking like this is substantial change in people's opinions, then I don't think it's right to say, oh, we had an election once and you can't change your opinion now. You know, a crucial fundamental tenant of elections and referendums should be that people can change their mind and you can regularly check in with people um, where things are at. Um, I, at the last Scottish referendum, I, I didn't get involved at all in terms of any official capacity campaigning, but I always wanted Scotland to stay with us, um, partly because I love Scotland and I just thought, you know, it'd be a real shame to, to see them go. After Brexit now, though, and Boris Johnson and the way this government treat them, I would totally understand and support if Scotland wanted to go independent. I'd be really sad to see it happen. Um, and I think, you know, it'd be a sad thing for our country, the country that includes them. But actually, I can totally see the arguments of Scotland to go independent at this point. And if I lived in Scotland, I think I wouldn't be surprised to see that I'd be making it. One interesting thing I kind of find about the Green Party Obviously, now you currently have two leaders, which I think for a lot of people outside of the Green Party are kind of bewildered by that. And it's not to say that it's a bad idea, but it's not uh, what we it's not common, shall we say. But what's interesting is I, looking through is there are various people who have kind of been more apathetic to want to go into leadership. Uh, Caroline Lucas wasn't too keen on it, but took it because there was no one really else. So. What do you think, first of all, are the advantages of having two leaders? And second of all, are there current any issues with in regard to people wanting to be leaders and in regard to the two currently that they don't have a high profile as you've had previously with Caroline Lucas, Natalie Bennett and Sean Berry? Yeah, so um, I really defend the job sharing situation. I think it's you know something we should have more of in society in general, not just in political parties, but in management roles or any role at all. I think too often uh, we live in a society that doesn't have a good work-life balance. Someone has a job, it literally dominates their life. It just makes sense to me that if you can share a workload, it means someone has more time for leisure to be able to do the things they want. And of course, whether you're a man or woman or non-binary, that you know, there's, there's caring opportunities there in looking after a family or looking after an elderly relative. And so I think the more we could shift to uh, that social care aspect, uh, giving people the opportunity to do that rather than feeling like people need to be run down by their jobs. And this, of course, comes into a universal basic income to tying all the threads here together. Uh, I, th I think that's a good thing. So I think what the Green Party are doing there, as we so often do, is showing a different way of doing things, a different way of doing politics. And I think it generally really works. One, at elections, it just makes sense that you've got two different people to go around and inspire activists and to go do the groundwork and, and be there and someone doing the media, you know, around the UK and another person in London. So I, I think there's so many opportunities and good reasons to do that. And then I think, you know, I've not sat in on the calls because I've never been a co-leader, but my understandings of them from speaking to people who've been co-leaders is that you sit down and you do democracy with each other. Like you have an issue and you talk through how are we going to um, 
deal with this. Now, of course, if someone's a leader, they can have a team to do that with them. But I think there's something beautiful about having someone that you absolutely trust who's your partner. And you say, okay, what is our position on this? You challenge each other privately. And then you go out there with the United Front saying, this is, you know, the decision we've come to. And I think that makes for a better politics. Uh, do I wish Carla Denia and Adrian Ramsey were more famous? Yes, absolutely. I think we've got work to do to, to raise their profile. Um, and to be honest, though, it was the same with Sean Barry. I mean, Sean has a fantastic profile in London. I don't have an, I can't say enough good things about Sean, both as a colleague and a friend and as a co-leader of a party. You know, I, I literally learn stuff from her every day working in the office, the way her brain works, how fast she is on things and also where her moral compass and her values lie. And it's always fantastic to, to talk things through with Sean. Um, but still, you know, when she was leader, the amount of journalists who, you know, they'd be interviewing me and I'm talking about BBC journalists who might say to me, and Zach, your leader, Caroline Lucas, today has said, and I'll go, actually, our leader is Sean Barry and Tom from Bartley. But the answer to your question is, you know, I'm having to correct people on national TV or radio about who the leader of the Green Party is. So, yes, there's an issue that the Green Party do not get noticed, that our leaders aren't high profile enough. And, you know, I'm, I'm thinking out loud here, I don't know what the answer to that is other than to keep pushing them forward and to keep getting them coverage. And I think that is changing as the Green Party become more credible, as more people are voting for us, as more as we're in that, those discussions more often, uh, the media will start to pay more attention. And we're certainly seeing that happen in London. Um, I think the majority of the media and kind of that London focus definitely know the work that Michonne and Caroline are doing on the assembly. Um, nationally, not so much, obviously. Uh, but I think that's through consistent, credible work and being trusted voices. And I think, you know, that's what we need our leadership to do. And I think Carla in particular in Bristol West, having that profile and being a credible voice in Bristol will naturally raise a profile. But I'd be lying if I didn't say, you know, I wish she was already have a higher profile because you know, that, that's handy. Uh, final question. During the North Shropshire by-election, I spoke a lot with the candidate and, you know, he, he was a very nice guy, lovely dealing with him. But one of the things that he spoke about previously to being candidate for that by-election, he kind of spoke, I kind of asked him a question about this himself, which is that one of the issues with the Green Party, obviously, is spreading the funds around the country because obviously you're a smaller party with a smaller base, so it's a lot difficult to kind of spread funds around what what are the ways that you overcome those challenges and you know outside of just simply raising more money what more support can we give into local candidates yes yeah, so the obvious answer to give here is that the green party don't accept huge donations from corporate donors uh which is often how the labor party and conservative party are run particularly the latter obviously uh but actually kiss thomas labor party i think increasingly are taking more and more donations from, from corporate donors, although I'd have to source check that. So take that with the caveat. That's my instinct, not, not necessarily a fact. Um, so we accept donations of usually fivers, tenors from individual members who believe in what we're doing. And, you know, that's in some ways the Bernie Sanders model. And I think, you know, that's an exciting model because essentially you're demonstrating your grassroots, organizing the momentum by attracting people from, from local areas. Now, I think that inevitably means that cities are going to be favoured. And I'm not mad about this. And that might be because I'm from Manchester and have lived in London for 17 years and I'm a city boy and I, I'm not going to deny that. So, you know, I have an affinity towards the cities. But I do think that the arguments for cities to go green are really, really strong because uh, essentially when cities, people often think that cities are really bad for the planet and they can be. But actually, cities can also be amazing for the planet. The fact that you've got better public transport, that you've got people living together and sharing and more communal living is actually more energy efficient in many ways, too. And not always the way the city is run, but, you know, that argument is there. And that's not to say that, you know, I'm rejecting the countryside. I've also lived in, I've actually lived in Shropshire and Shrewsbury for a few years. Um, and for a, I went to university in Aberystwyth and often enjoyed the countryside and being a green, I like the countryside. Um, but very often, um, the pockets of young people who are the the lifeblood of the Green Party do tend to be in cities. And I think that's just a fact at the moment. We clearly have more work to do to build up those rural bases and to have bigger parties and to raise more money. Um, but I don't think it's an uh, unsensible, unsensible, insensible, unsensible strategy to focus on cities like London, Brighton, Bristol, Stroud, um, and uh, Strada City. I don't know. I'm going to get myself in trouble. I don't think it <laughs> I is. Start... I don't think it is. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't think it is either. Isn't the thing if you have a cathedral, 
I don't know if Stroud has a It cathedral. is. Like, Wales is tiny, but technically Wales is a city because it's got a cathedral. Right, okay. I don't, think, Stroud, I don't think Stroud does. I could be wrong, but as far as I'm aware. Um, I just picked Stroud to be honest because it's um, the beating heartland of, of green politics. And I think one of the exceptions to, to what I was just saying, in fact, Owen Jones asked Sean Berry during the election, you know, she was talking about, we've had this progressive alliance, et cetera, et cetera. And Owen Jones was like, but what about Stroud? You wouldn't stand down for Stroud. And I just remember her saying, you know, Stroud is like a spiritual home for the Green Party. And we'd like stand down in quite a few constituencies before we dreamt of standing down in Stroud. So just, you know, stop coming for Stroud. Um, so, yeah, I think that's the only reason why I put that on the list of cities. But yeah, to, to answer your question, I, I, you know, we need to build up everywhere. Um, but, you know, that's somewhere where that's my personal opinion that I would rather see as focus on the cities, because for me, the Green Party's youth movement uh is where the momentum for a better word um is that and that's like the the lifeblood of the party and very often that comes together just in terms of sheer numbers in cities well thank you very very much for coming on uh it's it's been an incredible honor to to interview you like this and and speak to you about all the important issues currently within the green party also yes a zoe dance that no one can see because this is audio form but it is iconic uh um if you haven't got the opportunity or haven't so far please do follow zach polanski on twitter it is at zach polanski um with a ck on the zach just in case you were wondering um please if you're new to this podcast please follow us on twitter and follow us on spotify our twitter is at pnder politics uh you can follow us all individually me my uh me Zoe, Peter and Jack, who unfortunately is not a part of this today. Um, I hope you all have enjoyed and please send us your feedback because we always want to learn more Why and improve Jack the quality. Jack hasn't boycotting you. He's well, editing this. Jack's going to edit it. He's editing it. So yeah. no, Jack, He's this is not Jack. to you. Hello, Jack. <laughs> Sorry, Jack Jack didn't boycott. He, he just couldn't make it today, We're unfortunately. We're all taking it in but... turns. When we get some right-wingers on, I'm not bothering, because I can't be bothered with that. But with you, I wanted to be here. Thanks, Zoe. It's so nice to meet all of you guys properly in person. This isn't properly in person, is it? Virtually in person. <laughs> well, thank you very much. And...